Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast today. We've got Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, John Farley, and I'm Hazel Burton. On our show today, we have got a brand new set of recommendations. So some new TV, some new films, and some new who knows what uh, that we'd like to recommend to our audience. We're also going to be taking on a brand new listener question about what we've been most disappointed by in 2020 so far. But, you know, we are going to be trying to keep to nerd culture if we can. I did make a list of my general disappointments of 2020, but I ran out of printer ink and I was still only on the bees. So, <laughs> yeah. so a lovely, uplifting end to the show. So let's get started. So how is everybody? Tired. <laughs> yeah, it's the for, for for reasons. Well, for reasons, we're recording this in the morning, and I was thinking about this. I don't think I've ever seen your faces in the morning. We've only ever hung out <laughs> uh, in the afternoons or or evening times. So I'm trying to see if there's anything different about <laughs> the way you look. <laughs> what I don't understand is, do you make Andy put a paper bag over his head until midday? <laughs> It, it's more of a it, it's a cotton blend, I think. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm not I'm not evil. A, he's allowed that's to. a fairly low standard of evil there. And uh, having only ever seen the mask from the inside, you will of course not realise that it's a lovingly painted replica of Chris Hemsworth's face on the outside. I am not allowed to look at the outside of the mask, but I had assumed. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not question it when I asked you to do Thor's accent? What is Thor's accent? It's definitely not English, but it sounds like an Australian approximating an American approximating <laughs> English. Haven't you two just celebrated a sort of semi-half-early anniversary thing yesterday? No, it's a very real thing. Yesterday was our <laughs> minus one wedding anniversary, 365 days before the day we get married, which is definitely a thing. It is, yeah. Yeah, we celebrated and we gave each other presents and everything because <laughs> we're daft. So why was John there? <laughs> If you two were celebrating, it's not it's not an anniversary without John Farthing. Like no, any, anybody else across the country who doesn't have John Farthing in their anniversary is missing out. I am available for any celebration you would like for a reasonable <laughs> fee. Yes, Andy got me a a lovely um, a lovely book uh, which is all about uh, Eliza Hamilton's life. It's a it's a it's a novel about everything that she did um, in the fifty years since her husband Alexander passed away. Uh, which is a bit of a spoiler for Hamilton, but I assume everyone in the whole world has watched that by now, you know, been, been on a campaign, so I assume that's worked. Um, yeah, so it's so a... And what did you get him? I got Andy two things. He only got me one thing. I got him two things. Um, oh. I got him a new Captain America t-shirt. Um, and to be fair, the second present is something that we'll do together, which is a jigsaw of the Office characters. <laughs> I also got a card. So a card is a thing. I yeah. got two things. We are even. It's a draw. Yeah. Can you believe the shops actually sell minus one anniversary cards? Wow. It's incredible. Mm. <laughs> well, wouldn't have thought they would print such things, but uh, yeah, I found one. Uh, it only looks a little bit like it's been scribbled on uh, with a biro by an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and um, we, we sort of decided as well that um, for our normal anniversaries, uh, you know, the, I think you have paper and wood, I can't remember the others, um, we'll be celebrating something in nerd culture. So um, our first anniversary will be like Star Wars. So we'll watch Star Wars. We'll um, uh, travel to Tatooine. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, I've been thinking about this because I've been looking... Um, you mentioned this before, and I've been looking. And I think your you should keep your film anniversaries, but they should also be related to like the traditional gifts you get for each year. It's like you know, you get paper for the first year, and so mm-hmm. on and so on. So you have to have a gift that is related to a film that is related to the anniversary. So, for example, on your first anniversary, you could watch the paper, or forgotten eighties horror film Paper House, or Paper Moon. <laughs> yep. Second anniversary is Cotton, so obviously the Cotton Club, the Francis Ford Coppola musical. Obviously, yeah. yeah. Um, third anniversary is Leather, so you have a choice of <laughs> Leatherface, Leatherface, <laughs> the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Three, or any of my sex tapes. Oh, <laughs> oh I can't stand the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh, John Farthing really is going to be in the old anniversary. Oh, isn't he? God. <laughs> I think he's going to have to be there to explain it to me. It sounded very confusing. <laughs> so we have to get each other a present, which is related to a film, yeah. which is related to um, the type of material that the present would be made of, which is related to the film, which is related <laughs> to the date. But- yeah, I may not have thought this through. Uh, John Farthing's wedding advice. Shall we do some recommendations? Yes, let's. Yes. Yes. <sighs> Who would like to go first? Uh, I can go first. Mine will be possibly slightly brief because um, I'm going to recommend, I'm going to put it out here and I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to recommend a TV show having only seen one episode Ooh, of the TV show. Dangerous. Yeah, so this podcast will go out in a week's time after episode two has aired. So if this goes terribly wrong, do not blame me. But um, based solely on the first episode and the pedigree of the people involved, I'm relatively confident in recommending Lovecraft Country, which is the new HBO show um, in the, I want to call it the Watchmen slot, kind of the prestige limited series slot that's been their takeover from Game of Thrones over the last couple of years. Um, So Lovecraft Country, as it suggests, is inspired loosely by the works of H.P. Lovecraft, but it's in no way a straight adaptation. Uh, It's set in... 50s America, um, so segregation is still in force. You follow um, the, the main character, which is Atticus Freeman, played by Jonathan Majors, who... John Majors in this. John Majors. <laughs> okay. I was like, this is a hard pass if John Majors is in yeah, this. Yeah, it's, it's a very different... It's a film about early 90s British politics. <laughs> and, and sleeping with Edwina Curry. <laughs> Oh, Irina Curry, yes. Why do I think of Virginia Bottomley? You're always thinking Virginia Bottomley. I tell you what, uh, on a tangent, I'm not the first person to say this, but um, Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher is a confusing time for John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. You don't know whether to wank or cry. Oh, God. Hey, do a cry wank. We've established what a cry wank is. It probably will end up like that. <laughs> Someone on Twitter, I, I, I forget the name to credit, described it as the Mount Everest of tough wanks. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But what if she just, you know, turned Margaret Thatcher sexy? What, what are you going to do? That's the problem. That's what worries him. 
Because like Gillian Anderson is is like you know one of the sexiest women on the planet, yeah. playing one of the most evil women on yeah, the planet. Yeah, but what if she's? So- it's like if Chris Hemsworth played Hitler. Ah, yeah. No, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like, what if she makes you forget all of Margaret Thatcher's atrocities, and you know, next next general election you start you know voting for her. Voting <laughs> Tory. Tory. Yeah, that's that's how they're doing it. This is an evil Tory plan. <laughs> Yes, it's not John Major, sadly. It's uh, uh, Jonathan Majors, who's the lead character, who is a um, black man in 50s America, um, whose father has disappeared in mysterious circumstances. Um, the character's also a fan of sort of pulp 50s science fiction and older sci-fi and horror, including the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, extra textually, it's important to point out here that H.P. Lovecraft was famous for two things. Firstly, being a very good writer of gothic horror, um, and it's that sort of genre of book, but also incredibly racist. I can't even say the names of a lot of like the the things that he he wrote. So, what you've got here is the character who is aware of Lovecraft's racism, but is still is still a fan of the work. But was set in a world that is incredibly racist. Um, so, the majority of the first episode. The the bad guys are racist white sheriffs, and there's an absolutely terrifying sequence with about something that I'm sad to say I've not heard about before, which have called Sundown Counties. I don't know if anyone's aware of those or Sundown Towns. No, no. I've heard the phrase. I can't remember what it is. So a Sundown Town is essentially if you are black and you are there after dark, you can be arrested. Oh, with curfew. And the implication is you're more likely to get lynched than spend some time in jail. Yeah, it's in uh, Green Book. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so we we, we we start off in Chicago where we meet sort of his uh, old childhood friend who he kind of has a romantic attachment with um, and his uncle. And together they travel cross-country from Chicago to try and find what's happened to his father. And as they do so, they kind of travel more through backwards America and encounter monsters both of the racist variety and of the giant bug with several eyes that will eat you variety so it's an interesting comparison between the two types of horrors and perhaps suggesting that the the real life horrors these people are facing are scarier than the fantastical monsters Mm. now that may make it sound a little bit perfect but it's quite light-hearted despite that it's funny and lively the characters are all very well drawn. There's some brilliant horror moments. Um, surprisingly pulpy, um, which perhaps you know is in 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 line with the tone of the the books on which it's very loosely based. Um, so from the first episode, I'm really really looking forward to it. It's created by Misha Green, who has some form in the genre. I think she was one of the Writers for Heroes. I'm hoping the first series of Heroes are normally. <laughs> it's a big executive producing there in J.J. Abrams and Ooh. Jordan Peele. Now, that's a bad sign because J.J. Abrams, for me, they always have fantastic first episodes, really good concepts, great pilots, and then it all goes downhill <laughs> within about a season. Oh, dear. So that is a bit worrying. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the, the very last shot suggests that we're going to be in for a very different second episode, and I'm intrigued to see where it goes. Uh, but it's very... I, I mentioned it's the Watchmen slot. It reminded me of Watchmen quite a lot. So obviously the Watchmen episode that dealt with the Tulsa Massacre dealt quite explicitly with that kind of racism and 
what people were dealing with back then, but never at the expense of losing the fact that it's a, a slightly pulpy, fun horror mm. sci-fi series, first of all. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. It sounds really good. Um, I'm intrigued, and I think I'd like to give it a try. Uh, you mentioned the, the two different types of horror that are going on there, uh, and you touched upon a third, um, and I'm referring to J.J. Abrams. Uh, <laughs> how much <laughs> does it suffer from gratuitous lens flares? Um, there is one lens flare shot that I noticed. Um, I wasn't on full lens flare alert, but it certainly didn't suffuse every shot of the show. <laughs> That's good then. I will try it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you mentioned it being based on the works of the author rather than on the actual stories. So it's more set in the world that he inhabited. A little like, say, Castle Rock which is set in the worlds of some ideas of Stephen King, but it's not a straight adaptation. It's based on a book. That's not a Lovecraft book. It's based on a novel of the same title. But we're in a world where H.P. Lovecraft exists as an author, but it also appears that the sort of creatures that appear in H.P. Lovecraft books also exist. So which other authors would you like them to do the same thing with, where they, instead of adapting the stuff, continued stuff into a world that's based on the world they created? Um, Isaac Asimov, I think, would be quite a good one. Foundation is mm-hmm. coming out fairly soon, isn't it? So On Apple TV. Yeah, that'll give a lot of people more of a sense of his his mm-hmm. world. I think a lot of Isaac Asimov stuff was in the same fictional universe anyway. I've not read them for a long time, but I remember enjoying like, the robot stories yeah, that he, yeah. That he there's did. A, and, there's a couple of collected stories. Yeah, the, the Will Smith film, unfortunately, didn't work at all. I think there's something Which is a shame because it's from the guy who directed The Crow, Alex Proyas, mm. and you th- would have thought he would have um, created something really interesting rather than something that, in my head, I just confused with Minority Report. Yeah. In terms of occasionally you're trying to remember what elements are from which of those two films. I think Will Smith is in that Tom Cruise category where whoever the director is, you get a Will Smith film or a mm. Tom Cruise film rather than a, a film that plays that director. So, on the subject of the first episode of Lovecraft Country, how many uh, abominable creatures with giant tentacles that should not be out of ten would you give it? I would give it nine out of ten. Mm. On the pilot. So, an octopus plus a spare tentacle. That's ba- based, <laughs> based on the pilot. I, I may turn up at the next episode and say I've made a terrible mistake. Yeah, but it might not be just about Lovecraft Country. No. It might be Different. any number of yeah. possibilities. <laughs> Most episodes start with that. Have you seen who has been cast in the uh, new Nicolas Cage film? Nicolas Cage? <laughs> uh, well, obviously Nicolas Cage, but um, there is a new film where Nicolas Cage is playing himself. And... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, so they've got someone who is going to attempt a Nicolas Cage impersonation. Is it you? It's not me. No, I offered to do it, but um, no. <laughs> so, so Nicolas Cage is playing himself in the film and Pedro Pascal from The Mandalorian and Game of Thrones has mm. just been cast as a Nicolas Cage super fan <laughs> this is weird oh god and really he's really doing something that self-involved yeah, in I, fact yes of course he is the film is called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent <laughs> sold wow. Jesus <laughs> I am curious I have to admit but then I was curious about Mandy, so... Hmm. <laughs> there was a film that came out a few years ago called My Name is Bruce. Oh, yeah. And it sounds like almost exactly the same idea. And that was uh, 
Bruce Campbell playing like a sleazy version of himself. Who I enjoyed that. I thought it was great. Yeah. So I would like to recommend something quite lighthearted and daft, uh, something you can stick on with your dinner and it might make your peas more interesting. This um, is Monday. And <laughs> it is the opposite <laughs> of Monday. <laughs> uh, but it's Rod Gilbert's work experience. Uh, so Rod Gilbert is a Welsh comedian. He's known for... Um, sort of reflecting on his real life experiences. Uh, so, for example, there's a, a stand-up show on Netflix, I think, um, and it's called Rod Gilbert and the Award-Winning Mince Pie, uh, which saw him question his whole sanity, his whole career, and his whole life after suffering a mental breakdown brought on by an award-winning mince pie at a motorway services station in Doncaster. Um Another show which is, is brilliant is called The Man with the Flaming Battenberg Tattoo. Um, and that is based on him going to anger management classes. And it tells a story of how his Flaming Battenberg tattoo, which is as literal as it sounds, saved his life. And he got that tattoo when he was doing his work experience program, uh, which is when he spent a week as a tattoo artist and became convinced that in order to draw tattoos on other people he should experience what it was like firsthand and that's what he chose so the whole idea with the work experience show is that um, people have told him that he has the hardest job in the world uh, being a stand-up comedian but he thinks that other people's jobs are much much harder so the series follows him for a week as he becomes immersed in other jobs so as well as a tattoo artist he's been a primary school teacher a mother, an RAF pilot, um, a cake decoration artist, a male model, a, a bin man, a scout group leader, a zookeeper, a butler, cabin crew for British Airways, a paranormal investigator, uh, a police officer. There's, there's, there's tons. Uh, each episode is about 25 minutes long and they're, they're extremely funny in that kind of fish out of a water sort of a way. But a lot of them have a lot of heart and soul and emotion in them too. So a really recent episode that came out, I think, in April of this year uh, saw Rod take on the, the role of a care worker. So they released it in April, but I don't think it was due out until much, much later on this year. But they wanted to bring it forward um, as a tribute to care workers and everything that they're doing to tackle COVID-19. And it kind of shows how initially he was so reluctant at taking on some of the tasks that care workers do. Um, but he soon got rid of all of that and developed an incredible rapport with some of the elderly people. Uh, in particular, this amazing woman called Betty, who he, he sort of playfully, jokingly insisted that she was trying to drown him in a swimming pool, <laughs> which was very funny. Um, he became very overwhelmed by the whole experience and broke down several times. And I have to say I did too, because it, it is... It's a very funny show, but it's uh, very, very real at the same time. Um, and what the show teaches Rod and it teaches us as an audience is that there are a great number of highly underestimated and undervalued uh, workers out there with incredibly difficult jobs. And when you sort of combine that important message with some deadpan comedy and you know, the fish out of water element, it makes for a really entertaining show. It sort of feels like you've been invited to his own personal diary and is not afraid to show his vulnerable side uh you know when he's just he just isn't up to the job he just can't do some of the elements which is really powerful to watch um but then he has like 
these incredible one-liners because he narrates the show as well. Um, So there was one, (laughs) I felt as out of place as Kim Jong-un in TK Maxx. Or the closest I've come to taking 200 kids camping is walking past millets with my nephew. So (laughs) it's really, really funny. I absolutely loved it. And I'm disappointed that we flew through all nine series in the space of a few weeks. I think there's about four or five episodes in each series. Um, But it started in 2010 and is still going. So you sort of see his own journey over the last 10 years as well through his various breakdowns and through his career and his life um, and what he brings to the show and what he takes out of it as well. So, yeah, if you fancy something that's, you know, not too long and you just want to watch something, um, you know, as a if you finish Parks and Recreation or if you finish The Office and you fancy something new, um, this is on BBC iPlayer. All, all the episodes are on there. I think I've seen two or three seasons of it and it's always watchable. It's always entertaining. It's definitely worth having a try to see if it's to your taste. Are there any where he decides the job actually is a piece of piss? (laughs) (laughs) Or is he always put into adversity in terms of what he has to get to grips with? I don't think there's any where he just thinks it's a piece of piss. I think he he enjoys the fishing one. Um, He sort of thinks he's quite good at that in the end. But most of the time he's like... I can't do any of this. <laughs> um, he's run ragged by the end of it, uh, but he gets he gets a lot out of it. But he's still like most of the time he says at the end of the show, "I can never do that. I can never ever yeah. ever do that." Um, but I think he particularly enjoyed the fishing one. I really like how respectful he is of absolutely everyone, and uh, mm. he, he has seemingly a, a easy, friendly rapport with everyone, and he always finds a way to gently and in a nice way take the piss out of uh, the people he's working with but it's never mean-spirited it's always in a kind of uh, camaraderie sense and in the end he always shows due respect to the people he's been working with yeah Uh, he seems like a really nice genuine guy while also being incredibly funny Yeah. yeah very flawed character but um i think that makes him really human and really watchable and really relatable i have a jobs related question okay so um, you listed the ridiculous number of jobs that he's done in the series. Mm-hmm. And that reminded me of a, another popular character who's had a number of jobs, Homer Simpson. Right. <laughs> so uh, can you guess, as of, the, as of March 2020, so the end of the most recent season, approximately how many different jobs has Homer Simpson had? How many episodes have there been? There have been about 600 or something ridiculous. Is that right? <laughs> 679, apparently. Was the one episode where you didn't get a new job? Would it be 678? It's going to be something <laughs> very high. I reckon probably about 250. Any advance or decrease on that? I'll, I'll maybe go a little... De- I, I haven't watched the last 10 years of The Simpsons, so I'm not sure, but I would maybe go for about 120. Sort of half that. I'll go for 310. Oh, now I've got to do maths. <laughs> um it's a, a, about halfway between Andy and Peter. Uh, he apparently has had 275 jobs as of the end of the most recent season of The Simpsons. Wow. The, the Simpsons needs yeah. to stop. <laughs> that has actually made me think that, in a way, the Rod Gilbert series is a bit like a live-action version of Mr. Ben, where he has a different job to do every episode. <laughs> so how many ill-suited job choices out of 10 would you give give this show uh it's another nine it's another nine from me Mm. high scoring Mm. 
Uh, well, I would like to recommend an ultra-low-budget Ugandan action comedy kung fu film called Who Killed Captain Alex? Uh, this recommendation is actually both for the film itself, which is very funny, and also for the studio that created it. Uh, so the writer, producer, director and mastermind of the production is Isaac Godfrey Jeffrey Nabwana, a man who grew up under the brutal dictatorship of Idi Amin. The young IGG Nabwana developed a love of Hollywood action movies and martial arts films and, after taking a computer course in video editing, he founded his own studio in 2005. He named it uh, Raymond Film Productions after his grandmothers Rachel and Monica. Yes, like the characters <laughs> from Friends, really. <laughs> Um, the studio is more commonly known as Wakaliwood, after Wakaliga, uh, the Kampala slum where it's based. Now, Who Killed Captain Alex is it's a wonderful, passionate expression of movie fandom. Um, released in 2010, uh, shot on a budget of approximately 85 US dollars. Uh, it was never expected to be seen outside of Wakaliga. Um, the way that they uh, tried initially tried to make money before things blew up online was they'd film it and then in the first week after they'd completed the film, the actors would go door to door in the neighborhood selling DVDs. Um, and then after about a week, it, the piracy had taken over and there's no more money to be made. But it was just that kind of um, amateur DIY effort uh, just in a community. Um, but a trailer made its way onto YouTube and it became a viral hit due to being delightfully, absolutely bonkers. It's uh, just, yes, a, a small-scale um, home movie kind of thing by a group of people who came together to have fun, make their own version of the bombastic action films they had seen in their time and enjoyed. Um, and it's as unpretentious as a film can be and it's got a great deal of charm as a result. Um, the plot is... Completely irrelevant, but I'll describe it anyway. Uh, Captain Alex is the country's top soldier brought to Kampala to lead a team of commandos to eradicate Tiger Mafia, Uganda's deadliest gang. During a raid, the team captures the brother of Richard, Tiger Mafia's boss, Richard, who swears revenge. Uh, he sends his men to kidnap Captain Alex so that he can have the pleasure of killing him himself. But before they're able to carry out his orders, an unknown assailant assassinates Alex. Things spiral from here into what is best described as a nonsensical bloodbath. Or, if you're the official video joker of the film, super action! And I will explain what a video joker is, as it seems to be a uniquely Ugandan thing. Audiences go to video halls, where the VJ is someone who holds a microphone and acts as narrator, translating the dialogue and adding their own commentary. And the soundtrack of Who Killed Captain Alex includes commentary from the illustrious VJ Emmy on the MIC who enhances the experience by cracking jokes and excitedly yelling bizarre phrases like Everyone in Uganda knows Kung Fu! And action-packed movie! Uh, it sounds annoying, but it's genuinely funny. It provides energy. It lifts this, this cheap home movie to another kind of more surreal level, and I love it. Um, also on the soundtrack are odd instrumental versions of a couple of familiar tunes. Um, so if you've ever, ever wanted to hear a Pan Pipes cover of Kiss from a Rose by Seal, <laughs> then this is the film for you. Finally. Um, the ending credits feature a song by Nabwana himself, which is a surprisingly touching tribute to his grandmother, Rachel, and has nothing to do with the film whatsoever. Um, the movie has quite a few lengthy action scenes, which is where most of the fun lies, and I actually quite like the way that they're shot, at least better than a lot of modern Hollywood blockbusters. So there's none of this 100-mile-an-hour editing with everything in medium or close-ups um, on a fast-moving handheld camera. You can actually see what's going on, which is refreshing. Uh, this is a particularly good thing because the special effects are the very definition of so bad it's good. Uh, the helicopters, in particular, are amazing. Um, 
So I'm just having a moment remembering um, the Ugandan Air Force. It's fantastic. Uh, the frequent kung fu fights with added cartoon punch sound effects are surprisingly well executed, even though they admittedly look only partially choreographed at best. Um, ultimately, Who Killed Captain Alex is so much fun because of the sincere, passionate spirit in which it's produced. Uh, if you were to watch it in isolation and compare it to proper films, you'd think it's terrible and probably rightly so but if you keep in mind that it is the product of a group of film fans coming together in the middle of their slum village to have fun and produce something to entertain their community i'm sure you'll feel the same warmth and charm that i did while simultaneously laughing my head off um if you want the briefest possible taste of what to expect all you need to do is get online go to www.wakaliwood.com and just look at that homepage. it's glorious madness how do you spell wakali uh, W-A-K-A-L-I-W-O-O-D Wakaliwood.com And just yeah, Behold <laughs> It's ludicrous and fantastic And fun Amazingly, Who Killed Captain Alex is available To stream on Amazon Prime uh, If you don't have Prime, it's also available for free On the official Wakaliwood YouTube channel uh, It's there in full, all 68 minutes Of it, uh, complete with VJME's Hyperactive commentary uh, the channel also has a bunch of other crazy videos up, including another full-length film, Bad Black, which is next on my watch list. So, Hazel, did you sit and watch this also? I was in the middle of an improv workshop at the time. <laughs> he, uh, so, so uh, yeah, Wednesday night is when uh, when we do improv, and uh, so Andy selects um, something that I would never, ever, 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 ever want to watch <laughs> on Wednesday nights, and he chose that this week. <laughs> are, are you any more convinced now? Do you know what? I am a little bit, because... Um, I, I do love kind of you know ludicrous quirky stuff, um, and I am I am quite intrigued actually. So I might give it a go. It is only short as well, but it's it's silly and it's fun, and I, I don't think anyone will have seen anything like it before. Mm. So how many badly choreographed fight scenes out of ten? I would give it eight badly choreographed fight scenes featuring Ugandan Shaolin monks out of ten. <laughs> Peter. As we have no new TV going out for a while, I have a few suggestions. One's an oldie, and the other's just appeared on Sky, but they both feature the same lead actor. I'd like to recommend The Americans, which ran from 2013 for six seasons, and has a very original premise for US TV. So this is set in 80s America. It stars Kerry Russell and Matthew Reese as Elizabeth and Philip Jennings, who are a pair of Russian KGB agents living undercover as a married couple in Washington during the Cold War. They're moved into a house next to Stan Beeman, who works for the CIA and has no idea who they are, and the first two seasons revolve around them, the Russian embassy and the CIA officers as their lives all intersect with each other. You see all the twisty-turny spycraft stuff with dead drops and seductions and clandestine meetings and trying to smuggle out secret plans for stealth technology. And all the time they're doing this, they're trying to live a, what looks like a normal life, and they're trying to make sure the kids don't discover what they're up to. But in the third season, their Russian bosses decide they want the couple to bring the eldest daughter into the fold too, because an American-born agent would be extremely valuable because they would be allowed to take on certain jobs you otherwise couldn't do. But this would involve telling her what they're up to for the first time. It's a very solid and highly regarded series, well-plotted and well-made with a decent cast, and it's interesting that the US audience are expected to empathise with the enemy, essentially, which is not something they probably do very often. The idea comes from Joe Weisberg, who's a former CIA officer, and the showrunner is Graham Yost, who's best known for writing the movie Speed. We watched maybe a season and then stopped, 
you do that sometimes. You think, oh, yeah, I'll go back to that. And you just don't because something else crops up. But as I say, without new material coming in, it's something we went back to and really enjoyed it. It's available on Amazon Prime and possibly ITV Encore as well. Has anyone seen it? Nope. Nope. No, it sounds interesting, though. It is an interesting concept, and the I think the leads are very watchable, and you do very much feel on their side, even though theoretically mm-hmm. you shouldn't. I've heard really good things about it, obviously not, not just from yourself, Peter, but I've heard um, some really good things online about some of the stunning acting in it. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Um, there's what she called Margot Martindale, who's quite a well-known sort of supporting actress. She adds quite a bit of sort of weight to it. Yeah, mm. definitely worth watching. It's been hovering around on my Amazon Prime to watch list for about two, three years now, and I've never actually quite got around to it. So maybe the next one after The Expanse for me. How's that been going so far? Brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, much as I hate to say it, Ian May is right about anything after his scathing takedown of Mandy last week. We have to get that on the podcast. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he just, He just kind of audibly broke down during watching it and I just we have to do a nerd court it would be the best thing ever <laughs> so for that one I think I would give it eight and a half double lives out of ten mm-hmm. so that's 17 then <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, the other show which I'll recommend more briefly also stars Matthew Reese and is Perry Mason it's based on a series of best-selling books, and the original TV series was a massive hit on US TV in the 50s and 60s, which set a pattern for police procedurals you can still see the influences of in uh, shows like CSI or various other things with lots of initials in them on American TV. It's produced by Robert Downey Jr. and his wife, and it deals with Perry Mason's early life in 30s LA when he first graduates from a PI working for John Lithgow to um, taking on being a lawyer for the first time. It's a lavish production, very expensive looking. It lovingly recreates the late 30s setting and has a real quality TV feel to it. Probably uses CG in lots of invisible ways for set extension and populate streets with cars and people to create a really sort of full world. It lacks the stuffiness that puts me off lots of English period drama. Instead of handling just one crime per show as the original did, It's an arc plot following a trial across a series of six episodes. It is still quite complex for a first season. It deals with a kidnapped baby returning dead, various characters' death, infidelity, religion and corruption. But there's plenty to get your teeth into. It features solid performances from Reese, Lithgow, Lily Palmer, Tatiana Maslany and others. I've heard a reviewer compare its feel to LA Confidential, which isn't far off the mark in some ways. Um, it's available on HBO in the States, I think, and Now TV in the UK. I've heard it's unrelentingly grim. A little bit on the first episode, but it doesn't stay there at all. It's just that the crime it's covering is not a very pleasant crime. I would guess it would be less grim than anything based on Lovecraft, but you never know. I only know Perry Mason from an Ozzy Osbourne song. Is there very much heavy metal on it? <laughs> not at all. It's set in the 30s. <laughs> Hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, though it ends the entire series with the Perry Mason theme with a slightly dodgy drum and bass oh, arrangement dear. of it, which is probably the biggest mistake they made in the entire series, I think. Now, I'm now going to spend eight episodes just waiting for a dodgy drum and bass <laughs> remix. Is it worse than the um, U2 version of the Mission Impossible theme that popped up in the 90s? 
Oh, where they forced 5-4 into 4-4. Four, four. Mm. Yeah. Forcing 5-4 four, four into 4-4 four, four is the name of my sex tape. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Believe me, there's no rhythm there. <laughs> oh. So how many um, dubious drum and bass remixes out of 10 would you give the TV show? Um, I think it's actually a very solid nine. Oh. It's a high scoring round this time, oh. but yeah. Nine's mm-hmm. all round. I had eight. <sighs> and also eight and a half for the Americans. So. Nine's all round, except for the ones that want nines. Well, I'll I'll dub it. I'm the, I'm in I'm in charge this time. I'm editing it, so I will just um, change it. You see how good it is to be in power. Don't I didn't recommend Hamilton though. Don't change my recommendation to Hamilton. It's amazing what you can do by taking the word not. I'm looking forward to the entire episode being like Hamilton is a amazing show. We all love Hamilton. <laughs> Thank you for the ideas. It- we should point out that Hazel is editing this show and the power is possibly going to her head. <laughs> oh, it's too late for that. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, um, oh, oh, that was a missing moment. I had the perfect prop for this. Hang on. So while she's got, what, what do we really think of Hamilton? I love it. It's, it's the best, sh- it's the best <laughs> musical I've seen, yeah. I think it's amazing. I thought it was really unrealistic the way they communicated through song rather than, oh, God, she's back. That's how much the power has gone to my head. I'm now going to act like King George III for the rest of the show. Why, why do you have a crown? Uh, Hazel is wearing a foil mm-hmm. crown. Um, actually, it is a Hamilton-related re- uh, response because Andy bought this for his rendition of I'll Be Back at uh, Jenny Winter's Cabaret last year. You'll be back rather than I'll be back. It wasn't a Terminator song, sadly. Oh, yeah. Though it would have been more entertaining <laughs> if it was. <laughs> it was very entertaining. Arnold Schwarzenegger should be in the Hamilton sequel. John, perhaps you'd like to improvise a song in a Hamilton style, as though it was done by Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. (laughs) (laughs) In the accent. Go on, have a try. Hazel won't use it if it's shit, I promise. Mm, Give me a bit now. I'm I'm too early in the morning, unfortunately. Worth a try. Yo, Sarah Connor, I'm coming back. Going back to the past to kill your twats, yeah. It's uncanny. It's like Annie's in the room. Yo, 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 it's Terminator 2. I was a bad guy, I'm a good guy too. Be aware of that guy that melts. Melted all over the place, yo. I'm Terminator 3, I'm a piece of shit. Nobody wants to see me. <laughs> the last time we talked about Terminator on the podcast in an official context, you said that Terminator Dark Fate was the new official Terminator 3, and therefore I assume that you are saying that Dark Fate is a piece of shit, and I agree. Thank you, John. Uh, okay. I'm Terminator Salvation, you won't see me, except for five seconds of bad CG. <laughs> Why didn't you, you'd have gone with Terminator Salvation is an abomination, but you know, yes, shoulda, oh. woulda, coulda. Genesis, 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 piece of piss. No, I'd, mm. I'm in Terminator Genesis. My name's Matt Smith. When I saw I was cut out, it was taking the piss. <laughs> <laughs> hey, obviously, you'll decide this, but that would make a good end. Shut up, Peter. I'm making the decisions. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You, yeah, you, I, I have in writing you telling me you wouldn't tell me to shut up. <laughs> That's true. I said I wouldn't tell you to shut up unless I only meant it comedically. And in this case... No, you meant it. I do. 
So now it's time to answer uh, a question from one of our listeners. So uh, here is Keris with her question. Hi guys, what has been your biggest disappointment in nerd culture this year? <laughs> Possibly that question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Keris. Oh, dear. Uh, it, it has to be all the things we don't get to see. Um, the stuff we know is coming will arrive it'll just arrive late but there must be a load of lost mm-hmm. opportunities series that might have been commissioned um other things that might have happened and now just too much time has passed and it's not going to happen and so that's kind of what i feel sad about yeah 2020 started so well for films as well um three of the best films i've ever seen uh, were out early in the year there was 1917 parasite and portrait of a lady on fire and I thought this was going to be the best year ever for cinema. And I was slightly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got an ama- we've got an amazing amount of films to come. Um, yeah, the, the, the episode that we put out uh, probably in January where we talked about all of the different films coming out in 2020 and we listed them by release date um, is probably a little bit <laughs> right now. Yeah. yeah. But they're, they, you know, they're not cancelled. They are coming and it, 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 we will get back to normal. This is, this, this is only temporary. Um, but for me, I think in terms of disappointment, it will be the, the lack of diversity amongst the 2020 Oscars and BAFTAs uh, and their nominations that felt disappointingly familiar Um, you know that in 2015 2016 all of the acting nominations were entirely white uh, and that prompted the the Oscars so white campaign and it was pretty much the same in 2020 I thought it was amazing that Parasite won um we'd just gone to see that film the day before the Oscars and stayed up all night to watch it and I was jumping up from the couch just really celebrating that film but other than that just just such ignorance of uh of diversity I think um there, there was one performer of colour nominated across the 20 possible spots and that was uh, Cynthia Erivo uh, nominated for her role playing Harriet Tubman and that is a film about uh, a a slave (laughs) and I just think why (laughs) let's just let's look much wider and let's nominate more than one performer of colour and uh, you know there was there's there's, there was so many um, people that were overlooked Lupita Nyong'o for us um, Michael B. George and Jamie Foxx for Just Mercy, um, which was an incredible film. The entire cast of Parasite. I just that was disappointing, really, for me that they just really haven't uh, learned their lesson. And it's really sad because, like, staying up for the Oscars was, is my thing. Um, I've done it for decades, and I think I decided in 2020 that I wasn't going to do it again because it's just not right. Obviously, one of the big films coming is Tenet, which I believe stars a black actor in the main role. Uh, John John David Washington, yeah. So hopefully that might be some scope for Oscar noms this time. Mm-hmm. That's the guy from the leading Black Cladswood, isn't it? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. he was very he was good in that. Great in that. Yeah. For me, the biggest disappointment is that 
due to the lack of new cinema releases and cinemas reopening this week with nothing to put in them, it looks like New Mutants is actually finally going to get a cinema release, I believe, this week. <laughs> Meaning my long-running joke of about two and a half years as to when the film will finally come out will finally be done and dusted, and I believe I may have to eat a hat or <laughs> one of Dan's hats or something. We first talked about that, I think, in episode four of the podcast mm-hmm. about three years ago. <laughs> You've been to the cinema, haven't you, Hazel and Andy? What was it like? We actually felt quite comfortable there. We, I think we were fine. Yeah, we went to see this really old movie called Empire Strikes Back. Oh, I've heard about that. <laughs> yeah, I'll never take off. um it was it was fine i mean the we were nowhere near anybody else uh we had a sofa to ourselves we were wearing masks the staff were wearing masks not everybody in the theater was wearing masks um i think maybe people felt they were too far away from each other that it wouldn't actually matter i don't know but uh yeah we, we we felt all right um it didn't feel like uncomfortable wearing the mask for for two and a half hours um it was just really, really lovely um, to be back in the cinema again. I have to be honest, we've, one of the many things that we have uh, missed um, from being in quarantine and lockdown is uh, is obviously the cinema. And um, you know, when that when the the logos and the trailers, although one of the trailers was for Peter Rabbit too. Oh, that was <laughs> <you know>. painful. <laughs> that was. I was like, nearly walked out. <laughs> is that yeah. when half the audience pulled the masks off? I don't want to live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah honestly it was awful um but no uh it, it, it was it was uh it felt like a great experience and um i think i will go and see tenet in in the cinema um i think when this episode comes out uh, tenet will have just been released um so we'll be going back very very shortly um and you know i think as when you when you start like trying um things again like going to the pub or going into a restaurant it's very odd at first it feels like obviously very clinical and restrictive but within about 10-15 minutes when you kind of um, become familiarized with all the new uh, new rules you start to relax a bit and that was similar to with the cinema again because so. I don't think you've seen uh, Empire Strikes Back in the cinema before have you how did you find that Nope. It's a, it's it's quite a good film, isn't it? <laughs> no, they should make a sequel. Yeah. It's, it's, it's no Phantom Menace. But no more than one sequel. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I just wish it had been the original theatrical cut rather than the special edition with unnecessary editions. Yeah, so we were talking about this. I've only ever seen the special editions. I've never seen the original theatrical cut because the special editions were released, I think, just before Phantom Menace came out. And that was when I was about... Um, 12 or 13 which is actually when i watched it for the first time mm. um you know lots of people started talking about the star wars phenomenon and i was like phenomenon um and i was like oh what's that because i grew up in lincolnshire and as you know um that is disconnected from the rest of the world no one <laughs> ever gets to see anything in lincolnshire uh, <laughs> so i hadn't uh, i've never seen the theatrical version so i have no idea um what i'm missing out on the ones to seek out might be the despecialized editions where they've made HD versions of those original releases by combining bits from all over the place. So you don't have sort of 100 extra spaceships in a scene just because you can, or uh, lots Mm -hmm. of slightly poor CGI aliens wandering past in the frame. (laughs) I think Empire is the one that was best released, isn't it, though? From my recollection, the special editions, there's not that much done to it other than kind of filling in backgrounds, I think, in the Cloud City... Yeah, you get some little 
mm-hmm. little extra CGI shots um, that kind of establish that you're on Bespin and they look a bit out of place uh, because everything else is real sets and so on. The most obvious place, other than redubbing Boba Fett with the guy from Attack of the Clones, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> when Vader makes contact with the hologram of uh, the Emperor in the middle of the um, asteroid field. I can understand why they put um, the uh, more recognisable um, version of the Emperor um, on there, but they changed the dialogue as well, and the dialogue didn't need to change at all. There was nothing wrong with it, and in fact, in the version we saw, um, there's actually a bit of a plot hole, because the Emperor says, we have a new enemy, uh, the young rebel who destroyed the Death Star. I have no doubt that this is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker, and Vader says, how can that be true? Except earlier in the film, he had said, yes, set your course for the Hoth system, I'm sure Skywalker is with them. So he already knew that he was after mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker. He already knew who he was, and then they put a plot hole in because George Lucas is an idiot. <laughs> was it not that he was lying? Was he not pr- trying to protect his son and lying to the Emperor? You could very easily contrive an idea that Vader was feigning ignorance with the Emperor because he wanted to recruit Luke to be his apprentice so he could take over. But the fact is, that isn't in the film. That's just extracurricular going on in your own head that it's just a plot hole and you can contrive a way to to make it make sense, but the film doesn't. Mm -hmm. So it is a plot hole in the film and it's stupid and I hate it. It's good. I know. (laughs) Okay. Oh, oh, oh. While we're on uh, a positive note, I'd like to talk about something else that disappointed me in 2020. And um, that was HBO's announcement that they're going to release the fabled Snyder Cut of Justice League. Uh. And this bothers me not because the 27 effort, uh, 2017 effort was terrible, although it was, and not because Zack Snyder isn't a very good filmmaker, although that's true as well. But it annoys me because I think it will possibly validate the delusional sense of entitlement that some people seem to have when it comes to the media they enjoy. Um, There was a gigantic campaign of um, Twittering and letter writing and phone calls and all sorts of nonsense. And HBO have made this decision to release the Snyder thing, which I'm not going to bother to watch anyway, but they they released it because they think it will make them money, and it will. But to some screaming babies on the internet, it's going to feel like vindication of we were right all along when we don't like something, we can just complain and we'll get our own way. And and I just I worry that when you embolden people of, of these opinions, it can lead to worse things. I mean, look what happened after certain referendums and elections and words from politicians. People can be emboldened to do things that they might not have thought were really acceptable before and now that we've had a a big um, very obvious uh, occasion of uh, a studio doing something because they were forced into it by lots of people online um, the next time a film casts an actor or an actress that people don't like or an actor who isn't white and people are going to think no we can complain we can change this we own we, we like this thing therefore we own this and therefore we can bitch and moan until we get what we want. I thought it was quite funny to see that Joss Whedon's basically stayed out of this, even when being directly slagged off by Snyder. And what I hope is he continues to do that, and then once it's available, all we get is a two-word tweet from him, which just says, <laughs> told you. It's, it's kind of like the talk about Rise of Skywalker and the um, people saying, you know, that was not directed by J.J. Abrams, but it was directed by Reddit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, in that you know the 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 ideas that I really liked uh, that Ryan Johnson did with Last Jedi um, were either ignored or overturned for for the final film in the mm. trilogy, and that's that is uh, what bothered me at the time and still does about uh, Rise of Skywalker, and it's just like mm. yeah, people are obviously entitled to their opinion but feelings that they can dictate how things should go that everybody should then enjoy better is a, quite a dangerous attitude in my opinion i don't understand the um zack snyder fanboys who spent the last decade going well man of steel was terrible it is an awful yeah. film and we don't like batman versus superman and what they're doing and then so it's I want to see the version of justice league made by the guy that made the version of superman and batman <laughs> that we didn't like yeah. <laughs> I think I watched the Snyder Cut yeah. just out of curiosity more than anything. I think I will do as well, but I think mm-hmm. it, part of the problem with the sort of serious fan stuff is that often you get this idea in your head of what a thing is going to be, and it can almost never be mm-hmm. that thing. And then that's what we're seeing a manifestation of. Yeah. Has anyone seen the Richard yeah. Donner version of Superman 2 that came out on DVD a few years ago? Well,. We all know the story of Superman 1 and Superman 2, but essentially they f- were planning on filming both films together and then they got to a certain point and they basically said, just finish Superman 1. So they had all the Superman 1 filmed and about three quarters of Superman 2 filmed by Richard Donner. Richard Donner then had a fallout with the producers and they brought in, after Superman 1 came out, Richard Lester to finish Superman 2 and he shot the missing scenes but also reshot a lot of footage and for many many years people said oh you know they've always wanted to see the Richard Donner version and then about 10-15 years ago he was given some money and a bit of time to actually put together his cut and it was okay but it wasn't this thing that had been built up in people's heads for the last 30 years and I I, I think what happened with Richard Lester in that film is kind of what happened with Joss Whedon in Justice League, in that everything people didn't like about the film, they assume is the work of Josh Whedon. And in their head, the Zack Snyder film is the film that they imagine and want. Kind of like the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2, which is good. It's a, you know, I think it's an improvement, but it's not this amazing lost artefact that's been built up in people's minds. So I think that's going to be disappointing for a lot of people. That said, I think I would have liked to have seen David Fury's uh, Suicide Squad as opposed to the Mm -hmm. version that got hacked to pieces by the video trailer editors. I just would have liked to have not seen Suicide Squad. (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd accept that as a solution. (laughs) Okay, um, so... Uh, just to flip Keris's question uh, on its head a little bit, um, so rather than anything disappointing, is there anything that exceeded our expectations um, in terms of nerd culture in 2020 or anything that we are not disappointed by yet but um, are still hopeful is going to be really, really good? Uh, I suppose it's given us more time to watch all this media stuff if we're not enjoying ourselves going out. Yeah. Yeah, remember when we kind of um, talked before about, oh, God, if I only had the time to, you know, to kind of get through this series and watch that, and, and uh, it's kind of been forced upon us. I just sat and watched hundreds of hours of MasterChef Australia, though, rather <laughs> than watching all these great shows. More fool you. I still sat there. Do you think you're uh, a better chef after um, after seeing it? Oh, very much so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> More likely just a better TV watcher. <laughs> um. I will tell you how I have changed as a as a cook in that my lunch has gone from um, trying to grab 
a terrible sandwich in the works canteen to yesterday being annoyed that I didn't have time to sous vide the beef that I was having <laughs> on a salad. <laughs> and have you become a better Australian as a result of watching? Of course, mate. Of course I have, comma. This is presumably you have to Fosters. deal with on a daily basis, Andy, how to be convincingly Australian. <laughs> No, no, because Thor has a perfectly convincing Norse god accent, <laughs> which is, I, I want to say it's supposed to be a posh Englishman, kind of. It is. It's what English people sound like to him, I think. Yeah, well, it was directed by Kenneth Branagh in the first one, who's kind of the archetypal Shakespearean foreign person, yeah. Shakespearean posh Englishman. So he probably thinks that's Do it how like me. English people sound. <laughs> yeah. um, Enunciate clearly, boy. Oh, that was very good. It could have been worse. Brian Blessed could have directed the first Thor, which would have been a very different performance. Still would. Still would. Not Brian Blessed. Loki's <laughs> alive! <laughs> <laughs> of course, we all know that the best thing about 2020 is that the movie of Hamilton was brought forward <sighs> from just being released in theatres in October 2021 to being released to everybody <sighs> on Disney Plus in July. Oh, uh, dear. My, my internet, so my, my, my internet's yeah, gone yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. just heard is, some. Uh, Isn't it a shame I'm not editing this episode, John? <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, it's very good. I, I thought you were going to say that the best thing about 2020 has been the way that um, communities have uh, drawn together online um, to, to maintain contact throughout social distancing. And we've had wonderful quizzes and get togethers via video calls and um, the cabaret we listen to every Sunday evening and, and uh, all the things that the uh, School of Improv and uh, other improv people have put out uh, just to try and ease the the difficulty of 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 the new normal but yeah, no no it was, it was hamilton no <laughs> yeah no uh, on uh, all joking aside uh lockdown would have been a far different and worse experience if it hadn't been for our online get-togethers and uh, all the all the, the the quizzes and stuff that we've been able to do and hamilton And that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks' time with another Buff or Bluff quiz. You can check us out on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. Please do send in your listener questions for us to tackle. And if you have the time, it would be amazing if you could leave us a little review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, John has the most amazing reward for anyone who does that. What is it today, John? Well, cinemas are open again, so if you send us a review, I will reward you by sneaking into the cinema where you are watching a film, sitting in the seat behind you, and whispering spoilers in your ear during the movie. Through my mask. If you don't hear John on the next podcast, it's because he's been murdered by one of our listeners. Now Vader's his start. Until next time, you've been listening to... The Ugandan Bruce Lee. A man leading a double life as a Russian spy. The lengthy, tedious, directors cut version of John Father. <laughs> <laughs> and a woman who is making plans to erect a Chris Hemsworth monument. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 Your face. <laughs> <laughs>